morning. It's good to be with you. So uh, we're in the book of Daniel, and our series is Thriving in Exile. I want to remind you here at the outset that we, if we are followers of Jesus, are living in exile, period. Um, We are pilgrims uh, in a land that's not our own, and we're waiting for a city built by the hands of God. All right, so that is the backdrop. That's not because... um, of a political system in America or somewhere else, uh, that is because of a spiritual array that is deployed against us. So in the New Testament, there's a word uh, cosmos. I mean, it's the world, right? It's cosmos is how we say it in English. But in the Gospel of John um, and in Paul's writings, when when they use the word cosmos, they mean the powers, the spiritual powers that are unified and against Yahweh. And not only those spiritual powers, but the people who have been captured by them. So humanity has been deceived by our enemy Satan, and so are part of the cosmos. And it's that system, and I'm not talking about a cultural system, specifically any one, it is all of that system that is trying to form us into the likeness of itself. That's why Paul says, don't be um, conformed, don't be pressed into the mold of the, of the world system, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. All right? So that is what we're talking about. I want to I set that as the background uh, for our time together this morning and for this idea of thriving in exile because we live in exile, but we don't want to just sit here and complain and moan and say, if only so-and-so got into office, then we'd be okay. Because you know what? We'll still be in great trouble. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who. All right? All right. <clears throat> so turn to Daniel 3 if you haven't already. We're going to tell the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And um, it's hard to say Abednego and not Abednego. But I'm going to be true to the text of Scripture. And if you look at it, it's Abednego. All right, I'm sorry. So I'll probably say it wrong somewhere along the line, but it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So what is going on with them? Let's read the story. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. That is a large image, probably overlaid with gold, it doesn't say. Can you imagine if that was just actual all gold? It'd be very soft. Um, It's 90 feet high. I preached a a very similar sermon to this back in 2015. So those of you that were there, uh, you can leave now because you've heard a lot of it. (laughs) But apparently in that service, I said that this is like 75 feet. And the guy who did the plans for the church came up to me after first service in 2015 and said, actually, this is 45 feet. So the image is twice as tall as from the floor down here to the ceiling. Big image. I meant to measure this between services. I think this is longer than nine feet, but it's a very large image that he has set up there in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Verse two, he then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. 
So what are they doing? It's this. This is a swearing-in service at the beginning of term of Congress where they swear, our, our political leaders uh, swear to uphold the Constitution and defend it against enemies, foreign or domestic. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is requiring of his people is that they swear allegiance to him, his gods, he, he as a god. Um, that's what he is calling for. So this is what is happening in this section. Verse three, so the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Sorry, I jumped ahead. Um, then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations, men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I want you to notice a couple things here. One, what is the enemy looking for? The enemy is looking for a thoughtless, immediate response on our part to his demands and his temptations. Heard of Pavlov? What our enemy wants is to be able to ring a bell, whether that's an ad, whether that's a, a Netflix show, whether that is um, something you see on, on TV, whatever it is, a, a billboard, um, any, uh, a, a line from a song, he wants us to hear what he's calling us to and for us to immediately respond in the affirmative. And if we are not training ourselves to think, we will do what Pavlov's dogs do. We will salivate when the bell rings and we will bow down because we will be trained to do that. We are in constant discipleship from the youngest age to wherever you are now, we are in constant discipleship by the world system to be formed into its image. It should not surprise us that we're gonna find our heroes in trouble. So that's the thing what I want you to notice. The other thing I want you to notice is, have you noticed the lists? Long lists, right? There are three lists here. The list of uh, the officials and then the people's tongues, nations, and then all the, the musical pieces. We see some of the musical pieces here. Uh, horns, that's liars, that's a liar. Um, that's a trigon, you're all familiar with the trigon probably. Uh, the NASB calls it bagpipes, which I think is hilarious. Uh, first service, I, I, was, I like Brett McDonald. Do you know Brett McDonald? He's one of the guys that wears a kilt once in a while. I was like, all I could think of this week was Brett McDonald playing his bagpipes. Um, and then they form a royal band, all right? So th those are the lists that we have. Those are the three lists that we have. So what's the significance of a list? In ancient Near Eastern language, which Aramaic and Hebrew are, um, the significance of a list is to show importance. When you list something out in that language, you're saying, hey, look, this is really important. And so here we have three lists. All the important people, all the various people groups, 
and then all the musical instruments. What Daniel is trying to show us first is Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is really important. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is a big deal because of who he has, the variety of nations that are there in his, in his city, in his nation now, and all the instruments that he has. He thinks he's a big deal. And did you notice how they repeated each list twice? It's very bad writing. It's very much like Daniel was a uh, high school student having to hit a word count. <laughs> He's like, I just put this list in again. What Daniel's doing is he actually is a very good writer, which you'll know uh, from when you read through Daniel and the chronological reading plan. Um, he's a very good writer. What he's trying to do is to show us that Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's a big deal, but he shows us how ridiculous that is by the repetition of the lists, and how clunky the reading is. So Daniel's trying to say, he's not that important. All right, so that's what we're setting up with all of the lists. All right, so they all fall down and they worship, except verse eight, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Remember, Daniel's been a big deal, right? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are already in positions of authority. We know that from the earlier chapters. So they're a big deal. Um, and so these astrologers come forward and they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. And he's like, yeah, I remember making that decree. I made it like five minutes ago. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So at least four times here, Nebuchadnezzar has been called king. Notice that? So important, especially in Old Testament. If you're reading the Old Testament, you've got to watch for the clues because they're not like New Testament writers where they're like, and here's the point. Uh, in the Old Testament, we were expected to read the story and unpack it and figure out what's going on. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, ah, come on, Daniel, all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. Right? Immediate, thoughtless response. That's what he wants. And if, you, if, if you're willing to do that, everything's going to be okay. If you, do not, if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That's the question of the chapter. You have an enemy who is uh, incomprehensibly more powerful than you. You are a pathetic mass of, and me too, not just you, we are squishy little beings who can be ended by a virus, a thing you can't see. And demons are arrayed against us with a world system that is built to destroy you. Feel scared? 
What God is able to save you from my hands, he taunts. And that's what this chapter is about. This chapter is going to answer the question, what God can save you from the hand of the enemy? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, hello? They replied, O Nebuchadnezzar. Now, can you imagine, first service I used uh, President Biden, this, this service I'll use President Trump. Can you imagine meeting President Trump and saying, well, hello, Donald. No, like, you just don't use someone's first name. It's, it's not respectful. And here they are getting ready to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Don't you think that you would try to show a little respect to kind of like ease the situation a little bit? But they say, oh, first name. What they're saying is, and what Daniel has set up for us with the several uses of king in the previous verses, they're saying, in this matter, you are not our king. They're not rebelling against him. They're not showing disrespect. They are simply clarifying the relationship between them and the king as it regards worship. And as it regards worship, you're not in charge. That's what they're saying. O Nebuchadnezzar. Um, we do not need, so here's the way it reads in your Bibles, and I'm going to make you uncomfortable here in a minute by saying that there's a better translation than this. That's, for those of you that know me, you're like, ah, here it is. Here's where Sam goes rogue. But, but stick with me because it's, it's super significant and the King James and the ESV both list this as an alternative reading, all right? So it, this isn't just Sam coming up with something. And I'm, I'm gonna show it to you and I'm gonna make my case and we can argue afterwards. Uh, we do not need to defend ourselves in this matter. If we are thrown in, this is how it reads in the NIV, the 84 NIV. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. In that translation, they are questioning the will of God, right? They're not questioning his power. They're not questioning his goodness. They're not questioning his knowledge. They're just saying, we don't know if he's going to want to or not. Although they say he will, but we don't really know if he wants to or not. So here's something fun. <clears throat> This is um, kind of a direct translation of the Hebrew or Aramaic. I, I still forgot to look up. I know parts of Daniel has Aramaic and some is Hebrew, and I don't remember which this is. But this is from the original text without inserting some of the uh, translation, translators' uh, clarifying remarks. All right? So here's what happens in translation. You have to do your best to translate something. And sometimes you're kind of like, well, is that really what they meant to say? Or is there some gaps? Sometimes there's some linguistic gaps that you have to fill in. Um, and sometimes it's just like, well, that doesn't make sense the way they've done it. So we're going to add some clarifying remarks. But here it is without the clarifying remarks. If it be our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. The stuff in brackets... This one should have been blank. I forgot to make that one blank. The stuff in brackets are where other things are inserted, but you don't need to. If, if, if it be our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. 
But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Do you see how that's different than what the bulk of the translators have done? The translators said, we can't have them wondering whether or not God is able to save them. We can't have them wondering if he's powerful enough to handle it. And so they inserted some verbiage to make it say, uh, to make it read how I read it to you out of the NIV. But really, the smoothest and least complicated way of translating it um, is right there, or if you want it a little bit smoother, I, I did this, which is no different, except I took out some of the, the brackets. Here's what I think it's actually saying. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, then he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if he's not powerful enough, because remember, what's the question of the chapter? Is it, is God nice? Is it, what's God's will? No, the question of the chapter is, what God can save you out of my hands? That's the question that's put to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they say, we don't know if our God can. If he can, he will. They don't question his goodness or even his will. They just say, we don't know if he has the power to do it. How could they possibly, I hear you arguing with me, Sam, how could Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who are going to get thrown into the fiery furnace, how could they possibly have doubted God's power? I've got some answers for you. First is, where are they living? Rhymes with Shmabalon, thank you, Babylon. They're living in Babylon, which means who won the war? Babylon, which means whose God is stronger? The Babylonian God. Yahweh lost. They went to war. Yahweh didn't show up. So that's kind of thing one. Thing two, the temple, the place that Israel goes to, to have a relationship with Yahweh, has been ransacked and defiled. They have lost access to the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that if you read the Old Testament, if you've been reading it through, you saw that they, they viewed it as, I mean wrongly, as a magical talisman that protected them. They've lost it. Fourth, they've been separated from their Jewish upbringing. They have been put into the government schools of Babylon, where they have been discipled after the gods of Babylon. How could they possibly doubt? Well, there's four pretty good reasons, I think, why they could say, well, we don't know. What I love about this, if this is, I think this is the right translation, if it is, they're saying it does not depend on God's capacity to save me whether or not I'm going to obey him. If we're only obeying God because of his capacity and the good things he might do for us if we obey him, 
how loyal are we? Because when the activity doesn't show up, are we going to bail? They're saying, doesn't matter. We're, we're not going to obey. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude, his, the, uh, the Hebrew there is his visage or his face changed. Uh, fun thing there, it's the same word for the image that he built. Remember his image, his big glorious image that was going to be the unifying uh, factor, the unifying uh, image that brought them all together in allegiance to him? It's not unchanging. His image changes towards them. So we, we're finding out that, that God is unchanging and Nebuchadnezzar is changing, which is good for Nebuchadnezzar before you get very far in the, in the book. He was furious and his attitude changed, his face changed, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Is that to punish them? No, please, if you're going to burn me alive, make it seven times hotter. Right? Let's, let's get this over with. He makes it hotter to make it harder for Yahweh to rescue them. Isn't that funny? He thinks he can make a fire hot enough that Yahweh can't deal with it. But remember, in his mind, who can save you from my hands? And he's going to make it as hard as he can. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown in the blazing furnace. Interesting list there, Sam. Would you explain that? Not quite yet. Just a minute. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. That's insane. So here are these warriors. I, it may mean bur died from their burns later, right? But I kind of envision like they're walking up I think I have a, yeah, here's a medieval uh, forge, and it would have been somewhat similar to this, um, where you'd bring things up to the top, um, and the fire is going down here, and it's raging, and the, things, and the metal comes out. Probably this forge they're going to be burned in is the one that they use to make the, the idol um, out there in the plains. Here is um, an older one, you can kind of see, because in a minute he's going to see them in the flames, right? It's because it would have been open like this. There was an open place uh, where you could see into. And of course, uh, a modern blast furnace is built after the same uh, kind of format. All right. So they're, they're thrown in, and the, the soldiers are dying, and they're being thrown in. Somehow their bonds aren't burning. The king Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. And he said, look. I see four walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. All, he, he's not saying, oh, I see the second person of the Trinity. Uh, he's just saying, he's saying, wow, uh, there's a God in there with them, and that must be the one that can save them from my hands. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. They were willing to obey a just and honorable command. That's a, a good word for us. We're not meant to be rebels. We're meant to live in exile and, and do good for the place that we live and to honor our officials. Uh, we are not supposed to be rebels except where the two 
um, cannot align. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. There's a little list at the end as well. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Why the list about the clothes? Because lists show the importance of something. How important are our clothes? Well, you're very glad that I'm wearing them. But our clothing is really very unimportant. It's trivial. Why the list of clothes? And I think it's to show that Yahweh cares about the trivial. He cares about the details of your life. You may sometimes think he's so big and so powerful. There's nothing my God cannot do. And so he must not care about the details of my life. He does. I think that's part of why the clothing list is there. The other reason the clothing list is there is to show us that those details, those small things, are going to become testimonies. Because when they're out of the fire, they come up and they sniff their clothes and there's no smell on them. You sit by a campfire for like 30 seconds, <laughs> you smell like a campfire, right? You get thrown into a fire, you got to smell like it, but they don't. And that just is showing God at work. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar reminds me a whole lot of Peter. He is just a torrent of events. Uh, his mind is always spinning. Who has sent his angel and rescued his servants? They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people, that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. The question has been answered. What god can save? It's Yahweh. It's the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon, an American ending to this story. Everything's all better. That's our story. What's the structure? I know you wondered this morning you got up and you're like, I'm so curious about the structure of Daniel 3. The structure, uh, especially in ancient Near Eastern, in, in all the biblical text, really, structure is so critical and so key. Uh, and here it is. The story, the chapter starts with a decree, a bad decree. It ends with a decree, um, also a bad decree, really, um, that your house is going to be torn down and killed if you say a bad thing against them. Uh, they were accused, and down at the end of the story, they were vindicated. See how these things are correlating? Accusation and vindication. Third was they were threatened, and when they wouldn't yield, they were punished. But what's at the center? This, is, this structure is called a chiasm. Um, it just means it's like in the shape of an X, which is uh, Greek, chi, or key. Uh, and so it, it's pointing at the center. The most significant part of a story that is told with this structure is the center. So what's the most important part? The most important part of the story is where they said, we are not going to bow down even if our God can't save us. We, he is our actual king. We are loyal to him, and we are going to depend on him regardless of whether or not he can take care of it. That's the center of the story. If you and I are going to be like anyone in any way in this story, it is that we be ready to make this declaration of loyalty and dependence on a daily basis. What's the significance of their loyalty? Uh, their loyalty to Yahweh trumped the law of the land. We know that from Peter. Um, who, you know, who are we supposed to serve? Are we, or who are we supposed to be afraid of? Are we supposed to serve God or serve man? Who are we, which one are we supposed to do? And the answer is obviously it's God. When the two are in conflict, 
we have to do what God says, even if it means uh, peril for us. But this is too easy because we live in a pretty simple and safe place and I, I know you want to come up and argue with me about how bad things are getting and I, I don't disagree that things are getting bad. Um, but things could be much worse and at this point, we're fairly safe. And so I'm not all that concerned about the law making me bow down to something. I would say that their loyalty trumped the law of their friend group. Their loyalty trumped the law of their uh, career success pathway. Their loyalty trumped the law of their sports group. The loyalty trumped the law of their family group. These are the places where it really be gets hard for us. When you're with your friends, a group of friends, and they're all doing something that's wrong, and in order to fit in, you have to do something wrong too. And it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. Uh, they'll forget about it. They know I go to church. It's going to be, uh, be okay. I can say some nice things later. We can't bow. We can't bow. Our loyalty and our dependence to Jesus trumps the pressures that we have in whatever circles we're following, or, or we're running, okay? Second, their loyalty to Yahweh was possible in the face of doubt. Doubt's okay. You're going to doubt. Uh, they doubted God's power. I, I think whenever we hit pressure, we always doubt either God's power, his goodness, or his knowledge. I think we always struggle with one of those when we hit hardship. In my life, I've never doubted the knowledge of God or the power of God. Because I've read the Bible. And I see how powerful he is. But I have doubted the goodness of God. I think a lot of people have trouble with that one. Third, their loyalty to, Yah to Yahweh gave Yahweh a chance to act. If they had bowed in their body, but not their heart, if they were trying to make that kind of distinction, they wouldn't have been thrown in the fire and Yahweh would not have gotten to show off. And our God is a show off. Read the Bible or look at the sky or woods or put a shovel into the dirt and dig it up and you'll see that our God is a show off. So why didn't they bow down? I think that's a, a, a really key question. And here's where we really land our application or, or how do we do our application. Why didn't they bow? And the answer, there's two. The first part of it is they knew they couldn't. It's that simple. They knew they couldn't bow to the idol. How could they possibly have known that, Sam? They've been living in Babylon. Right, but before they were transported from or deported, they, were, they grew up in Israel. They grew up probably in Jerusalem because they were elite, which means they certainly were taught the Ten Commandments. They were taught the Ten Commandments on repeat. What do the Ten Commandments say here? Really, you guys are asking lots of great questions. Keep it up. This is Exodus 20, verse 2. You get it, the same thing in the Deuteronomy passage, exact word for word. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. They knew from their Bible they could not bow. There's a part two to it. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, 
punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. We often get told about the angry God of the Old Testament. And they would have certainly been thinking about that. The one who punishes the children to the third and fourth generation. Why were they in captivity? Was it for their sins? No. 12-year-old Daniel had not set up idols. But their fathers had. And their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers. And they were currently being punished to the third and fourth generation for the sins of the fathers. But I think the second part of the answer is not a fear of Yahweh, but reliance on his goodness. We do not see that as a theme very often, or we don't recognize it as a theme very often in the Old Testament. But I would say, one, they knew they couldn't, and two, they trusted in the goodness of God. And how would they possibly heard about or thought about the goodness of God in the middle of exile? Look at the rest of this passage. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Does Yahweh get mad and punish? Yes. How many generations? At max, four. But when we won't bow, and when we will say, I'm dependent on Yahweh, the story says we get his loving kindness for 1,000 generations. His loving kindness, his goodness is 200, mathematically, 250 times stronger than his anger than his wrath. That's a staggering relationship. They knew they couldn't bow and they trusted God's goodness. I don't know what you're going to be hitting this week, this month, later this year. They had a firm foundation and friends, we have to have a firm foundation. We have to know some things. I I don't have time to make the pitch. But I'm going to say it again. We have to be practicing the habits. Remember the habits series? Part of the application is go back and watch the habits series. We need to be learning doctrine. We need to be thinking about Yahweh in our day-to-day lives, true and beautiful things. We need to be making music in our hearts. Music has a tremendous power to bring things back to our minds. So put in good music. We need to be giving thanks. We need to be Pattern, or forming our lives around patterns of prayer and then scripture, reading it. Yes, please do the scripture reading, but memorize it, meditate on it. It's scripture that informs the other habits. And if we'll build that habit, if we'll build that foundation, then when the terrible thing comes, whatever it is, we'll be ready to respond. Blessings on you. Have a great day.